So I couldn't resist. It's, uh, it's March Madness time. And so if you don't like college basketball, I'm sorry. Hopefully you won't be entirely lost. But uh, something you should know about me, I- I'm, I'm a Duke fan, which means I am, I am a, not a Kentucky fan. Uh, truth be told, I probably dislike Kentucky worse than North Carolina. Um, it's a bad year to be a Duke fan, it looks like maybe. Uh, it seems a little bit inevitable at this point that Kentucky will be cutting down the nets and winning the championship. So just, you know, enter my twisted mind and imagine that, that the world sees that this is a bad thing and decides that the game needs to be rigged, <laughs> uh, that, that we can't let this happen. It would be a travesty if Kentucky won. And so someone with a lot of money uh, pays off the refs. Uh, everyone's in on it. We, uh, we, we do pull a pretty fast one and sub in non-Kentucky fans for all the Kentucky fans. So it's, it's genuinely a hostile crowd. Um, and yet Kentucky, sad to say, still overcomes um, everything that's stacked against them. And at the end of the game, in this hypothetical rigged game, they still sink the winning basket. It's, it's a sad thought, I know. Um, but imagine something strange happens. Uh, the refs get together, the basket's been sunk, the buzzer's gone off. And then they come back out to midcourt and they announce that they are giving the championship to Let's just say Duke, <laughs> just for instance. And, and John Calipari doesn't say anything. He just goes along with it out of the goodness of his heart. Now, this is perhaps the most ridiculous part of this hypothetical scenario because, you know, any coach, including the, the wonderful Coach K, <laughs> would be throwing a fit. This would never happen. He would never let the refs just decide arbitrarily that, that, that the game would go to the loser, Um, As ridiculous and as implausible as that situation sounds, something similar is happening in Jesus' earthly trials. Um, The passage couldn't be more clear, and one of the points of emphasis of the passage itself is that Jesus is innocent. And that despite the efforts of everyone around him to, to make it seem otherwise, he is declared three times to be innocent, and yet he receives the charge, the the sentence of the guilty. And I think one of the most amazing things about the scene before us is that Jesus does not fight it. Uh, He willingly embraces this sentence. We need to see the innocent Savior who goes willingly to the cross even before the the courts of this world. And so the, the, the main idea I think we see from this passage is that before the corrupt judges of this world, we see a Savior declared innocent, willingly bearing the sentence of the guilty to free the guilty. Um, it's implausible, it's shocking, it should be scandalous to us. Um, and that's the idea we're gonna think a little bit more about this morning. I think one of the first things we need to see, though, is Jesus' willingness in this matter. Uh, it'd be a shame if we looked at this passage and walked away thinking that Jesus had been uh, forced into this situation, had been taken away against his will. Uh, Jesus willingly gives himself over to the injustice at hand. Uh, one of the things we notice about Jesus' trials is that it's, it's very unjust, isn't it? It's a rigged trial. Everyone involved in this situation is trying to rig the trial in their favor to their ends. The religious leaders, for their part, they bring Jesus to Pilate uh, because in that day they, they couldn't give the death sentence. They needed the, the, the political power um, of, of Pilate as the Roman representative. They go to him and, and they, they hurl these false accusations, don't they? 
Um, there's, there's quite a bit of irony to them even. That as they stir the crowds up into a frenzy, they accuse Jesus of misleading the nation. Um, they, they even flat out lie about tribute to Caesar as Jesus has um, just avoided their attempt to trap him earlier um, and said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And then they, they finally realize that if we're going to get Pilate in on this, we have to convince them that there really is some political threat here. And so they say he claims to be Christ, and just so you know, that, that's a king, right? And if, if Jesus, if the Messiah was the sort of king that they had hoped for, there would be reason for Pilate to be concerned. Uh, there would be political threat. But Pilate sees through, uh, I think, much of their accusation and asks Jesus, uh, are you indeed king of the Jews? Probably with a bit of sarcasm as he sees what's going on here. And Jesus gives a very short reply to him. And so the Jews are, are one party here that are trying to rig the trial. It's, it's very clear what they desire. And as the trial goes forward, they become more and more blunt uh, and clear about what they desire to see happen. Pilate, uh, for his part, is not innocent in this either. Uh, Pilate is not intent on rigging the trial necessarily against Jesus, but rather he's intent on the trial being something that serves him politically, isn't he? Uh, it's amazing, on, on the one hand, that, that Pilate declares Jesus innocent three times in this passage, but it's also amazing that he never actually acts on that judgment. Uh, why doesn't he end the trial after that first declaration? Why does he allow it to continue? It's clear that Pilate is concerned about the, the, the political atmosphere around him. Uh, he's someone that we learned from history was not known as being particularly uh, righteous. He was a, a cruel leader um, and, and did many things that were controversial. But here, it's clear that his interest in declaring Jesus innocent has nothing to do with Jesus's seeing justice, but rather was with his political manipulation. And what about the, for the part of Herod? Herod enters the scene as someone else who, who sees the trial as something to his advantage. Uh, Herod's the use of the trial is perhaps the most insulting. He's just excited for the chance to see Jesus. Uh, maybe he'll see a trick performed. Maybe he'll get to taste some of that delicious wine he's heard about. Uh, and when Jesus doesn't play the court jester for him, he joins the crowds, he joins the others in ridiculing him, harassing him. It's clear that everyone present, uh, the crowd with the, the religious leaders are trying to rig the trial, and yet I think Jesus also is active in this. Jesus isn't just a passive bystander in this, but he also is rigging the trial against himself. Um, notice that, that Pilate declares to him, you are, this man is, is innocent, he is, I find no, no reason to charge him, and Jesus doesn't play off of that. He doesn't raise his voice and say, all right, well, let's pursue a just verdict. Uh, let's follow that out, Pilate. When Herod has him before him, it's amazing. Jesus seemingly could have done anything, <laughs> and Herod would have been all right. I'm satisfied. Any miracle, said anything, and yet Jesus knows what will happen if he stays silent. Herod will be bothered and send him back to Pilate. Um, perhaps the most amazing thing about this is our Savior willingly allows himself to go through this, this corrupt court all the way to the end. Um, I think what we see is, is in, in many ways a fulfillment of, of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, in verses seven through eight, we're told that this suffering servant, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. And then it goes on in verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And we, we may not be able to tell it from Isaiah, but when we see Jesus in his silence, we realize that, that his silence is, is part of God's sovereignty in this even. That Jesus, like we saw in the garden, is bending his will to the Father's will, and that the silence like that of a sheep before its shears is not just some silence of fear, it's actually a silence that leads to verse eight of Isaiah. It leads to the oppression and judgment that must happen for God's people to be redeemed. And so this passage, Jesus' earthly trials, as gruesome as it is, as difficult as it is to, to meditate on, presents us with a savior that we can see and we can savor who rigs the trial in our favor, who willingly goes all the way to the cross. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to ask how our belief in Jesus' willingness as savior needs to be changed because of this. So often I think the temptation of shame and guilt is, is to look at ourselves and believe there's, there's no way God could love me this much. Uh, perhaps we're tempted to think that Jesus was kind of just forced into these last moments of his life. And yet Jesus, fully aware of what is in man's heart, fully aware, aware of the evil that he was going to the cross to die for, even as that evil unfolds before him, willingly goes to the cross. And as we've been reminded so many times in the, in the days leading up to the cross, God is sovereign in this. And Jesus willingly takes this suffering upon him as part of God's plan. And I think one of the reasons we sometimes struggle to see that is because we don't believe that suffering is part of the plan, that God can really use this sort of injustice. Um, and yet, so often, this is not just the plan for, for God's Savior, but it's also the plan for his people that follow him. Uh, it, it's, it's important to note, I think, interesting, that, that Luke, who records this trial for us, um, in, in his gospel, who also is the author of Acts, uh, records for us both the, the arrest and attempted trial of, of Jason um, in Thessalonica in, in Acts chapter 17, and also of Paul in Acts chapter 24. And in both instances, very similar things happen to those men. Um, it's, it's not just a coincidence that Luke, who wrote this chapter, also used very similar language to describe their trials as men brought false accusations and persecution to them. And so we see that, that so often the way of our Savior is also the way of God's people, that we should expect injustice and persecution as we see Jesus undergoing the same in this passage. Um, it should challenge the idols of comfort and prosperity uh, that we so often serve as we're confronted by a God who, who uses this sort of great injustice at the hands of evil men to accomplish the greatest good that this earth has ever seen. As this plan unfolds, um, as we see Jesus giving himself to this injustice, it finally leads to this, this confirmation of Jesus' innocence. Um, I think the second thing we need to see as we spend time meditating on the earthly trials of Jesus is that this corrupt court confirms Jesus' innocence and thus his ability to stand in the place of the guilty and accomplish something that the guilty never could. Um, like I said earlier, I think one of the, the, the things that Luke wants us to see most clearly in this passage is that Jesus is being declared innocent here. 
In verse 4 is when Pilate mentions it for the first time. And then again in verse 14. He even includes for us in verse 15 that we didn't see it while Jesus was before Herod. Herod himself, that man who mocked Jesus, actually agrees with Pilate. That there's nothing to be found here that would indicate that he is guilty. And then finally in verse 22, it's confirmed again. Even as the crowds are shouting out, crucify, crucify him. Something of Jesus' innocence leads Pilate to, to declare once more that there's nothing here. This man is innocent. And yet the passage is so difficult and so offensive because although the verdict is not guilty, the sentence is that of the guilty, isn't it? Pilate gives in to the demands of the crowd and allows Jesus to, to suffer what he should not have suffered. And it's at this point that the trial really just seems to break down into chaos and mockery of any idea of justice, doesn't it? That, that any sort of legal process just kind of collapses as the crowd cries out, crucify him. It's, it's ugly, it's hideous. And in this moment, I think we are reminded of the depth of our sin, of our corruption, and of our brokenness that would require something like this, that would require such a solution. Um, what I mean by that is, is, is it reminds me almost of, of a gruesome war. And I was a history major, so this is one of the things that I just, I guess I find interesting and I like to reference history. Uh, but so often I think we can see just how difficult and gruesome a war was by the means that it requires to end that war. And so, so often the greatest tragedies of a war happen near the end of that war and they're part of that process of trying to end that tragedy. Um, so in our country's history, the Civil War, um, kind of one of the first instances of a, a total war mentality with Sherman's March and the, the pain and suffering that, that came even through this part of the country. Um, the use of, of atomic weapons at the end of World War II. Uh, regardless of where you stand about what was and wasn't justified, what, what can and can't be allowed, the ways in which those great wars ended speaks to the great tragedy that led to them and the great suffering that occurred that they would be pushed to those ends. I think something similar is happening as we see Jesus go to the cross. Uh, how offensive and ugly as our sin, that this could be the only solution. So I think as we're offended at the injustice done to Jesus, we too should be offended at our sin that required such a means to an end. Um, that the offense of Jesus' trial should lead to offense of our sin. And yet... There is a beautiful truth as well at the offense of this trial because in the midst of this great injustice, we're reminded that Jesus is indeed innocent, that the lamb is spotless, that even as we're reminded of how great our sin is, this, this corrupt worldly court declares before the world as God as well will declare in his acceptance of his son that he is able to pay this price that just as all the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices that, that sometimes bore us as we try and read, and over and over again, there's all these instructions about how there can't be a spot or a blemish. 
finds fulfillment in, in the spotless lamb of Jesus Christ. Um, it reminds me somewhat of, of being in uh, a foreign country. If you've ever been to a third world where the currency is, is kind of wacky and, and they struggle to uh, weed out um, counterfeit money, you know that you have to be real careful how you spend your money. And, and kind of the worse the neighborhood, the worse the area, the more this is true. Uh, and so I, I spent time in Peru and uh, there were certain parts of town where you just knew you better hold that, that bill up to the light. You better kind of check that coin, maybe get out one that you know is right. And one of the things you have to do as well is not just uh, check the money they're giving you back, but be careful because sometimes uh, the, the clever uh, salesman will say, well, this, this, this bill's no good, and then pocket it. <laughs> and you realize, wait a second. Um, you know, so the, the worse the environment, the more careful you have to be. Um, and it's almost as if Jesus is this payment. And this is the final spot in which the bill is being examined. And because of the filth of this world, we just expect everything to be counterfeit, that nothing could actually pay this price. And yet Jesus is able. He is authentic. The payment can be made. And so even as the, the trial offends us, it points us to the offense of our sin it also points us to the sufficiency of our Savior. That Jesus really is sufficient. And, and in those moments in which we are tempted to let our, our insufficiency outweigh the sufficiency of Jesus, we can be reminded that even Pilate, even Herod, could see that this man was innocent. That he really was able to go and stand in our place, and once again, I think that is so important to remind ourselves of because if if one of the the, the plays, the the plots of Satan is to convince us that our Savior is not willing, uh, in a similar vein, perhaps he turns to us as well and says, "Fine, maybe Jesus really is willing, but can he really pay for that? You have you have done that so many times." Do you really think that the payment is endless? What you did was so awful. Do you really think there's any payment that could be made that is so wonderful and pure and spotless that it could cover that filth? And we're reminded, even before Jesus makes it to the cross, that he is able. And so the the trials of Jesus show us a willing savior. They show us an a, a savior who is innocent and able. And finally, this trial shows us the result uh, of the great transaction that is about to take place. That Jesus' earthly trial foreshadows the result of the divine sentencing. Christ in place of the guilty so that the guilty may go free. Um, Everything we've looked at thus far would be enough to say this is, this is awful, this is unjust. Why did it have to happen like this? And yet, there's that added detail, isn't there, that just adds offense on top of offense. That there's this man, Barabbas. And that there's, cust there's custom of releasing a prisoner. And not only does the crowd so intent on having Jesus crucified that they refuse to listen to Pilate when he says this man is innocent, but they would rather have Barabbas set free they would rather have a man who actually is guilty of misleading the nation and leading insurrection. And on top of that, a man who is guilty of murder itself. 
that he's the one to go free in place of Jesus. Um, it points to the scandal of the cross, doesn't it? That Barabbas did nothing to deserve freedom. He did nothing to, des- to merit this. So often, if you've ever watched a, uh, a show or a movie that has a trial where something goes wrong, where there's corruption, uh, the guilty party usually gets off because of some foul play, right? Uh, there's a lawyer that knows some loophole. They silence a witness. If you're watching a really seedy show, maybe they kill off a witness. Uh, and then the, 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 the criminal leaves the courtroom kind of with this, this, this scowl, <laughs> this prideful scowl that, that I've gotten away. No one can touch me. And yet I doubt that look was on Barabbas' face. Perhaps it was. And yet I think most likely it was disbelief. Uh, He didn't pay anyone off. He didn't have some incredible trial lawyer representing him. Just the people demanded for Jesus. They took Jesus and he was allowed to go free. What sort of room is there for boasting in the life of Barabbas? It's such a, a striking picture of what our forgiveness in Christ looks like itself, and I don't think we want to believe that it's this scandalous, do we? We don't want to believe that it could be likened to the freeing of Barabbas. If our freedom comes like that of Barabbas, what should our freedom look like? What humility should there be about us? What gentleness with others who are struggling with sin? Because there was nothing about our ability to handle our sin, to do away with our sin, to somehow make ourselves righteous that made us acceptable to God. Instead, we walked free as Barabbas walks free, receiving the exact opposite of what we deserved. That there is no one so unworthy, that there is no one so unreachable that the cross of Christ cannot cover their sin. Um, as we come to the, the end of this passage, um, I'd like to read this quote from J.C. Ryle that I think is so helpful in kind of summarizing the exhortation that comes from this trial. Uh, Ryle says, let us freely confess that like Barabbas, we deserve death, judgment, and hell. But let us cling firmly to the glorious truth that a sinless Savior has suffered in our stead And that believing in him, the guilty go free. Isn't that just a wonderful idea? A beautiful truth that in the moment that the the, the cross convicts us of our sin, in the moment that we, like Barabbas, see that we only deserve death and judgment, Christ steps to the cross and he does it even through this earthly trial as he refuses to defend himself, as he refuses to perform a miracle or a great sign that might allow his freedom, he gives himself over knowing that sinners like Barabbas will be set free and that he will bear that wrath on the cross. I love Ryle's summary and I think that that I would only want to add that not only is this sinless savior going to the cross for us, but he is a willing savior who would not allow his innocence keep him from receiving the sentence of the guilty. Would you pray with me?
Father, uh, who are we to receive such a gift? Um, That you would make him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become your righteousness and walk free from the condemnation of sin and death. That is exactly what you do through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb who even before the corrupt courts of this world could not be declared as anything but innocent, as anything but worthy of life. And yet he chose death so that we could live. Would you transform our hearts with that truth? Would you Make this church a place that is known by the grace of Christ. A collection of sinners humbled that Jesus would do what he did. A collection of sinners that recognizes that that we, like Barabbas, did not deserve it. And yet, you have freed us by the sacrifice of Christ to love you and to love one another and to love this community that you have placed us in, all to the glory of God alone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.